So, um, Dr. Nathanson, thank you for talking with me across the continent. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Where and when were you born? Uh, New York City, June 20th, 1947. So that makes you on the cusp oh. of, of cancer and Gemini. Do you feel more mercurial or more sensitive and emotional? Oh. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Sensitive, I think. Let's, let's stick with that. Okay. Um, I'm really interested in what you learned about becoming a man. Um, the, it's interesting to me to compare because some of the young men that I've interviewed in their 20s say starting in middle school, they learn don't. Don't be like a girl. Don't cry. Don't be a sissy. Don't, I don't know, sit a certain way, whatever. So I'm wondering what, what you learned. Well, I think that began in elementary school, uh, as far back as I can remember. And in fact, I had trouble learning my lines. And um, I remember, this is back in the 50s, and I remember um, there, there was a show on TV called the Burns and Allen Show from Vaudeville. Anyway, uh, Gracie was the crazy one and George was the relatively together one. But one day, um, and they were very popular, they had a long career, long careers in entertainment. And uh, But one day, Gracie quit, and she explained to the newspaper reporters that uh, her lines were all crazy. She couldn't remember her lines, and it was too much effort. And as a matter of fact, she had a heart condition. But she did. But that day, she gave the explanation that she couldn't learn her lines. And I felt the same way. I just could not learn my lines properly. Everything I did turned out wrong. And I certainly got a lot of um, uh, bullying in school uh, from both boys and girls, I must say. So that's what I learned in school, <laughs> apart from anything else. That's what I learned about manhood in school. Uh, fortunately, my father was um, not at all like that. He was uh, he was very much like me in some ways, but he was better able to pass for white, if you know what I mean. Um, so, and my parents had a very, very good marriage. And so what I learned about manhood was from my father. And uh, I have to say that I'm turning into him Every day I wake up, I'm doing something or thinking something more like him. Um, of course, I didn't realize as a child that um, what was going on. I just felt, well, adults didn't understand me and all the usual stuff. Hmm. Um, you mentioned in an email that that Judaism was part of the, the your enculturation process. What, what yeah. did you learn? I mean, when I think of Judaism and men, I think of the emphasis on scholarship and studying the Torah and the woman can manage the household mundane stuff to free up the man to study. Well, uh, yes, there's some of that, but I think what I learned at my school was, by the way, a Jewish day school. 
my parents were not orthodox, but they sent me to that school, and I, I'm glad they did. And I think what really, um, the first thing that I think of um, is that we had courses on Jewish history, and uh, aside from the biblical period, it was a history of uh, being bullied and intimidated by other communities. Um, and yet Jews somehow managed to prosper and survive. And so I'm not at all well equipped to look sympathetically at the idea that being a victim is somehow a badge of honor and that you should intimidate other people into um, being nice to you because, uh, because you're different in some way. I mean, Jews didn't do that. They didn't have pop psychology. They just got on with the business of living. And, um, and they happened to have um, mechanisms, including the love of learning, which were very useful in that regard. They had to, when they were emancipated in the late 18th century, they suddenly had to live in the larger world. Um, and... They didn't have much background in that, but they did have learning. And so that equipped them very well. They had to invent their own industries because they weren't allowed into other industries. Um, so I think basically that's what I learned. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder what the, the interest... There, by the way, I, I learned lots of other things later on uh, because I also studied Judaism in graduate school. Um, and um, and for me, uh, that does have a personal meaning, even though I'm not a pious person by any means. I don't I don't really care about biblical authority for anything. Um, but uh, but the basic uh, foundation of Judaism is the search not so much for learning, but for holiness. And holiness is something that you either experience or you don't, and I have. So that's so much for religion. Oh, you've experienced it in terms of, like, being bar mitzvahed and no, Sabbath no. or... No, well, that, there was all that. But no, I mean, the experience of holiness, it's a, it's a, a transcendent experience. So holiness or the sacred is not reducible to some emotion or some idea. It's just a sense of presence. Got it. Um, do you think <clears throat> that being bar mitzvahed fills in some of the need to be initiated into manhood, to have an identity as a man that traditional peoples provided those kind of rituals and we don't? Yes, in theory you're right, except at the age of 13, in 2021, is not really an entrance into adulthood. So, at 13, I knew from nothing. I mean, it was certainly, I didn't become an adult at the age of 13. But the idea is there, and you're quite right, that the rites of passage, that in every society, um, they have at least minimal rituals to, not only to signify entrance into adulthood, but also to demonstrate competence in some uh, basic function that they can contribute to society. 
Do you think that uh, fraternities, college, Greek fraternities, provide any of that kind of, well, they do initiations. Does that have meaning, do you think, for, you You want men to have a positive male identity. Does, does that do it? Because a lot of men were in college fraternities. I don't think that has anything to do with initiation into adulthood. It might be initiation into second childhood, but it's certainly not in itself. It does, it does nothing for society. I mean, some fraternities and sororities probably do community work of one kind or another, but that's not basically why they're there, and that's not what you're initiated into. Do, do they, do Canadian colleges have that Greek system as well? Yes, it's probably not as, uh, it's not as elaborate as in the States. I never joined a frat. Uh, nobody ever asked me to, but I wouldn't have even if they had. Um, my father had been in a fraternity. Um, I don't think he ever thought twice about it as an adult. Anyway, I'm not here to give a diatribe on, on fraternities. I'm just saying that that my definition of adulthood does not include the kind of stuff that goes on in frat houses. Right. It's you have to survive the ordeal to prove your toughness. So. Well, they have ordeals and the hazing rituals. Don't wake. Uh, but but you're, they're not initiated into anything meaningful. It's just, you know, can you endure it? And if you can, then uh, you have the prestige for a few year or two of being in our frat, and you might meet some people. But I mean, when I say initiation, I mean the um, dem a demonstration that you are capable of contributing something to society, at least one thing. And that is, from my point of view, that is the whole problem that men have today. Ah. It's, not something that, it's not something that came about with the advent of feminism, although that, that has exacerbated these problems, but that, but that isn't the origin of that problem. What Modernity, is? you might say, is... Well, are you saying like industrialization took men off the farms where they had the fruit of their own no. labor? Yeah, well, I'm going back much further than that. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the one of the major changes in human history was the rise of agriculture, horticulture first and then agriculture. And because with agriculture, people were settled on the land, they began building cities. They began uh, irrigation systems. They um, so specialization, uh, and of course, one of the consequences of settled life is uh, is war. And so, um, the question is: At one time, the male body had been a self-evident. Uh, had a self-evident function, and that was uh, to uh, provide hard-to-get resources. Protein from meat, yeah. Yes, and not necessarily hunting, but some of them went fishing, um, and there were always, always some hunting and gathering. But, but the male body had a function. It was an obvious function, and they did what they had to do, and women did what they had to do. I don't think they sat around talking about gender roles 
for the first, you know, few hundred thousand years of human history. But they did um, with the rise of agriculture because there were so many, there were so many, so there was so much jockeying for um, for specialized functions. I mean, there was writing, there was all there. So you didn't have to be a hunter or a protector, really, because the the role of protection of the community very quickly became um, uh, uh, one of class. And so the, um, the people who led the wars were the aristocracies. Ordinary men basically pulled plows around their fields. And they had to, because otherwise nobody would survive. So, um, no, but I'll, I'll, let me, I'll come back to that. Uh, so, so various technological revolutions, um, including the Industrial Revolution, including the Computer Revolution, including, you know, um, and, and most important of all, from my point of view, is what I call the Military Revolution. And the Military Revolution be, began at the, during the French Revolution when the revolutionary armies were recruited, they resorted to universal male conscription. So that meant, by default, that every man, simply by virtue of being a man, was a potential soldier. And um, so even in peacetime, it was still the underlying assumption and the entire culture was geared to producing loyal, uh, sturdy soldiers, uh, but the but the French Revolution, you know, the the new social contract that emerged when once you dismantle the monarchy and the aristocracy, there was a new social contract, and by that contract, every man was a citizen because of being available for the national armies. Anyone who wasn't a soldier was not quite a citizen, not in the fullest sense, and that included women. Um, so there was a problem right there. Um, nevertheless, until very recently, uh, and there's still plenty of opposition to it, um, the military has been a source of masculine identity, but the problem is that it's a lethal source of identity. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, we don't need that. Let's, uh, we need another source of identity that is not heavily tied to uh, kill or be killed. Um, now, to, to, now, so my, my own theory is that the traditional notions of what manhood could mean, and they're all, you know, they differ a lot cross-culturally and historically, but there are some things that they have in common. Um, and the one thing that is left that women still do not and cannot do, I'll have to defend that in a minute, um, is become fathers. So I think that fatherhood really is the, that's the last bastion. If we cannot assert that fatherhood is some distinctive, necessary, and publicly valued contribution, then we cannot have a healthy masculine identity. Hmm. 
And so if we can't have a healthy masculine identity, well, you look at what happens when, when, identity, when that crumbles. You have soaring suicide rates among men. You have soaring uh, dropout rates from school. You have men seeking some kind of affiliation with gangs or, you know, or crime. Because if society has no room for them as men, then to hell with society. They can turn against an abandoned society. So there are a lot of pathologies that are, that are emerging from this, from the inability to receive honor and gratitude for being fathers, um, and all the, uh, the fatherless families is now a plague on, on our society. So somehow or other, I think we've got to look carefully at that. What, what and fatherhood, of course, is not a synonym for motherhood. It's not, fathers are not assistant mothers. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's, it doesn't matter in the long run if fathers uh, wash the diapers or if they help out around the house or if they schedule the medical appointment. It's nice if fathers do that, but it's not necessary. It's not even necessary to be particularly nice. What is necessary is that fathers be in a position to introduce their children to the larger world beyond home. And that need becomes more important as they get older. Okay, so in infancy, children don't, infants don't necessarily need fathers around all the time to coo over them. But as they get older, they do need fathers. And you see, the message is very different. The message that fathers have to send to their children is, no, let me start with mothers. The, the one message that mothers must give their children is unconditional love, okay? I will love you no matter what you do. If you turn out to be Al Capone, if you turn out to be Adolf Hitler, I'm still gonna love you in some way. But fathers do not give that message. The message they give is, I will respect you if you live honorably in the larger world. Now, it's not an emotional thing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that children must learn. So I'm assuming that uh, you would agree with Warren Farrell's emphasis on fatherhood, like in his yes. book, The Boy Crisis. And he, yes. he makes the point that fathers teach roughhousing and funny put-downs and limit-setting and responsibility and risk-taking in a way that mothers don't. Exactly. And you learned that from your father. Yes. I mean, my father, uh, first of all, he was very engagé. He was not sort of an absentee father, even when I was very young. Um, and um, he uh, over the years, he told me things that I found very unpleasant. I mean, uh, he once, uh, I can't remember all the occasions now, but he criticized me. You know, I would rather have his approval for everything I did or thought and he didn't always give it. Sometimes he said, no, you're, you're all wet. You're not, you have no talent for this or for that. But of course he was right. And as I grew older, I knew he was right. Um, so, and he, I think he saw himself as what used to be called a gentleman. 
a gentleman is somebody who conducted himself with civility at all times. Um, somebody who respected other people, was honest, trustworthy. I remember going to restaurants with my father, and he would, because he had a mathematical ability, which I don't have, but he used to add up the bills in his head. Um, and on, on at least one occasion, I can remember him calling the waiter over and saying, you know, you undercharged, you forgot to charge for this. Now, see, these are lessons that stick with you a long time. Mm -hmm. Do you think that honor is a particularly male value? You know, my, I look you in the eye, I shake your hand, I give you my word that I will pay this loan off or whatever. Is, is that a particularly male value, honor? Well, it is. Uh, I think that uh, there is an equivalent for women, I think. But with women, it's been... Uh, it's, the symbolic focus is on sexual activity, whereas with men, it might, the focus would be more on communal or business or whatever activities. So in other words, but there is a sense there is a sense that that women can be either honorable or dishonorable, and sometimes in the same way, people who cheat it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. If you cheat, you're not honorable. But you said, you mean like sexually, if your, your honor is that you should be not promiscuous if you're a woman? Well, that would be an example. Okay. What, how did your father react to you coming out as gay? Well, actually, he, uh, neither, of my, neither of my parents were particularly surprised, for one thing. And secondly, they didn't really care. What they cared about were things like my father cared about. Well, what would happen to you if you were in a in a, a public washroom or a locker room and suddenly you gave the wrong signal? Or, and my mother was concerned about, uh, you know, well, if you don't get married, then you know we won't have grandchildren and that kind of stuff. But I mean, as far as anything else is concerned, they didn't care. And I think that was because they happened. I don't know how I don't know how common this is, but at least in that in their case, they had um, they never talked about sex, not with me, not with not well, they might have with each other when they were private, but they never talked about sex. But they and they and my mother did neither of them actually liked what were called risque jokes, and so if we had if they had people over for dinner and somebody made a risque joke. They wouldn't be invited back. But, but, uh, they were certainly not prudes. Um, and they enjoyed being physically close. And I remember one day when I was about five or six, I wandered into the kitchen and I found them standing together, holding hands and looking out the window. So, um, that was their, their sense that there was a difference between private behavior and public behavior. Mm -hmm. And what what was your coming out story? What people usually have a story. Yeah, well, I don't really have one because it was there was no drama. There was no mm -hmm. nobody was 
nobody was crying or yelling or mm. threatening or anything like that. And now, I have, I have friends who are gay who have not told their parents, and I've often asked them, you know, why? And they said, well, but they couldn't take it, they couldn't deal with it, they, they'd scream, they'd faint. But, you see, I, I always thought that it was my duty to my parents to be honest with them and give them a chance. Um, and I think that these other people, they're not really honoring their parents. They're not giving them a chance. Mm-hmm. And, and what have you developed over the years in terms of long-term relationships? It, has that been part of your MO? Well, uh, I haven't been, I would say I have not been successful in finding what I wanted. I wanted, a, yes, I wanted a long-term relationship, of course. Um, I, I oppose gay marriage but for other reasons. But I, but not gay relationships. Um, but I don't know. Maybe I wasn't good looking enough, or who knows what. Well, you're certainly good looking, so that's not it. Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you. But I, um, I remember once I had this. Well, maybe in a way, this is a sort of coming of age experience. I, um, I thought, well, I better answer ads or something just to get things going. I mean. Um, and so um, I contacted somebody, and, and we, we agreed to meet um, at a place near McGill. And I stood there waiting for an hour, and of course I realized that, you know, he just took one look at me and decided I wasn't his type, and, and that was it. Ouch. Well, these things happen. You get over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... There, there's since Stonewall. There's been a movement for gay liberation, and um, mm. women fought really hard to overcome the lavender menace. They called it uh, being not being recognized, like in the National Organization for Women. Have you gotten into those kind of political liberation movements? No, no, no. I was never part of that, and I was never part of any men's movement. I'm not politically oriented and frankly I have no political skills and uh, I, I think really I've been told that I have no social skills. <laughs> but, but no, I haven't done that and I, um, I, I did consider myself, at least in private, I considered myself a feminist for about oh, 15 years until I started reading. Um, I mean, I was, you can't object to the, the, the goal and the ideal of equality, sexual equality or any other kind is, is something that I find a, a noble ideal. Um, but by the time I started reading heavily in feminism, I began to realize that something wholly other was going on. The stuff I read was about hatred. Who are you? Can you give an example? Well, I read one book by, um, oh, there was Robin Morgan. She was one. And, uh, she, and, she has a son. She was, she was oh, married. Yeah. yeah. I don't think she would say she hates men. Well, you know, 
Well, first of all, what she wrote did indicate that, whether she says it or not. But uh, as you must know, there have been letters written, or not letters, articles written in the New York Times and the Huffington Post by women who claim that it's a problem for them to love their own sons because the sons are going to grow up to become patriarchs and rapists and what have you. Now, I don't know how many women think that way. I but, don't know any. Well... But the fact that anybody does, and the fact that prestigious news sources um, propagate that kind of stuff, this I find significant. But it, it, I mean, it's certainly not the, the thrust of the women's movement is hating men. No, it's not the thrust of the women's movement. But of course, as you know, there, there isn't one women's movement. There are many. And there, some of them are quite different. Uh, it's certainly not egalitarian. But what I call ideological feminism is another story. And that, that's, that's the terminology that I use. And you say that, that ideological feminism has become like a secular religion. Uh, yes. Uh, and so who are the... In a religion we have, you know texts and leaders and sayings. So to be specific about that secular religion, what are the key biblical sources, so to speak? Who, who are the spokespersons? Oh, um, it probably is different for every woman or man, because there are male feminists. Um, uh, well, one of the, uh, I mean, uh, just to think of one or two offhand, um, never mind the, the stalwarts like Gloria Steinem, but um, Catherine McKinnon, for example. I mean, she is, um, she doesn't just write books, she's actually a government consultant. She advised the Canadian government, even though she's not Canadian, uh, on, um, the, on, on pornography law and the sort of thing. So she and her pal, Kath, uh, uh, Andrea Dworkin. Andrew, Andrea Dworkin, um, and Andrea Dworkin swore to her last day that she didn't hate anybody, in her, but you can't read her stuff without getting that. She was married to two men. Yes, one of which, Stoltenberg, uh, decided that he it was it was not legitimate for him to have sex with anyone, let alone a woman because the, the sexual act itself was defiling and about power, and uh, so he just could not... So she, I don't know who her other husband was. Um, but they were... You, you know, you, you can say, well, these are fringe people, but I, um, I used to read Ms. Magazine a lot, and I remember once... There was some article on Andrea Dworkin, and the issue that came immediately after had dozens and dozens of letters, all of them saying something like, yes, Dworkin is an extremist, and no, we don't like that, but, and then they gave a list of reasons for basically circling the wagons and, and you know, uh, not allowing anybody to criticize Dworkin because she was uh, the voice of the future, 
she was pushing boundaries, whatever the word, the expressions that they used, she, they found her useful, despite her hatred. So in, in what ways is the, this branch of feminist ideology uh, a cult or religion or... Well, yes, I, I mean, there are other features of religion aside from canonical texts. Um, you know, there are rituals, there are special days, there are pilgrimage routes. You know, um, in Canada, there's a pilgrimage route uh, that commemorates the Mark Lapine massacre in 1980-something. Uh, you know, this guy, Mark Lapine, murdered 14 women in a school. And so there was a, a, a lot of, a, I mean, there was a, a kind of hysteria that evolved out of that for several months, beginning at the funerals themselves, um, and, and which basically people were writing, in, uh, once again, in, in prestigious news sources, that Mark Lapine was every man. Okay, every man wants to kill women, but they just don't have the courage to do what he did. Okay, so that was, uh, now why did I get on that? Again, it's a pilgrimage route. Well, there are monuments, of course, in many cities to that event. And every year they are solemnized with um, speeches and candles and vigils and uh, dignitaries. Um, so... That is certainly the kind of ritual that is commonplace in religion. Can you think of other special and names? Then, and then, wait, wait, and then there are other, other things such as notions of orthodoxy and heterodoxy or heresy. And so many women find, I mean, um, uh, that, they, that there are rules they cannot transgress and that they do their heretics. Such as? Well, uh, um, the most recent heretic, uh, probably, is um, who's the one, the one who, Roland, the one who wrote the Harry Potter books. Oh, yeah, uh, J.K. Rowland, because yeah. she doesn't want to, to accept trans that's right. uh, so, women as, as women. That's right. And, and you know, the, the whole woke movement, which seems to have appeared on the earth suddenly, within about a year or two, but of course it has much deeper roots. And some of the problems, such as intimidation, um, political correctness, uh, uh, identity policy, those are all things that go back much earlier. They also call it cancel culture. Can they also call yeah. it cancel culture. Yeah, so those are not new things. I don't even know that they were all invented by feminism, but feminism certainly made use of them long before wokeism exploded from the campuses to go mainstream. Um, and let me tell let me, me while I'm on a roll here. Please. Um, you know, one of the problems in, in Western religion, going right back to the biblical period, is uh, a mentality that people in my field, which is religious studies, um, call dualism. Dualism is a mentality in which 
the entire world is polarized between us and them. We are good, they are evil, we are victims, they are victimizers. Um, and so that goes back a long way in Western religion. You can see echoes, you can see the, the prototypes in the Bible itself. But also within that tradition is what's, what's known as the prophetic tradition, in which the source of evil was not just the dirty old Assyrians and Egyptians and Babylonians, the source of evil was even in here, inside us, all of us. Now that was a profound change, and that is still a resource within Western religion. People don't always remember it, but it's there, and it's powerful. Well, isn't it usually projected, the devil made me do it? Yes, that's another, that's another feature of it. Uh, the devil got into Western religion because if you say that God is good and uh, evil happens, then how do you explain that? So the one, what they did was instead of adopting a second God, although the Persians did that, but instead of doing that, they simply invented a, a being called Satan or the devil or Lucifer or what have you, that was not to explain the injustice of the good suffering, the innocent suffering. Um, so in other words, what I'm saying is that, that traditional religions have developed over many centuries and after many failures, they have developed mechanisms to deal with controversies of this kind. Now, who knows, if the world is still around 500 years from now, maybe feminism will develop into something more like that, I don't know. Uh, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not a future, uh, I'm not a, uh, a fortune teller. All I can do is look at what's going on right now and say, right now, hatred is out of control. On all sides. I mean, it's not just I'm not just talking about feminists, I'm talking about, about racial conflict and about every other kind of conflict. Here, I live in Quebec and we have this thing called linguistic separatism. Um, you know, I think that basically it's a, it's a feature of human existence that it's not going to go away, but we can find ways of coping with it. Mm -hmm. um. You, you developed these ideas in a series of books about misandry. Um, so maybe we could talk about some of the, the focal points of those books. Was spreading, is misandry, is that how you pronounce it? Well, I don't know how to pronounce it. I call it misandry because I want to emphasize the angry. Okay. Um, spreading misandry, the teaching of contempt for men in popular culture, was that the first in the series? That was the first, and it was intended as the introductory chapter to a single volume. And you wrote this with Catherine Young, another That's right. professor. That's right. She had been my, my thesis director in grad school, and uh, after I graduated, we sort of went into the research business together. Um, so, Spreading was the first volume, um, and... Most of it is, um, well, it begins with very harmless 
stuff. You know, jokes, anti-man jokes, and things like that. But every chapter up the ante. So that by the time we get to the end of the, toward the end of the book, we're up to dehumanizing and de and demonizing men. And the evidence we took was mainly from movies um, and TV shows. Um, in those days, we didn't have a thousand channels, and no, I, I couldn't write that today because I have not, I don't have control over so many media. But in those days, it was relatively simple. Um, now, but that book ends. Well, the eighth chapter is the most important chapter in the book because in that chapter. It's called Making the World Safe for Ideology, uh, which, of course, is a, you know, a reference to, I think it was President Wilson's statement of, about making the world safe for democracy, democracy by going into World War I. So, um, uh, ideologies, so we defined ideology as, um, as a mentality. Uh, as, I, as I say, and it has seven or eight characteristic features. Um, one of them is dualism, but there are others. Um, and we looked at three ideologies. One on the right, one on the left, and, and, and feminism, which was the topic of the book. Feminist ideology, that is. Uh, so the, the ideology on the right, what's the obvious one, of course, was Nazism. And the one on the left, of course, was Communism. Now, so we pointed out that there were, there were structural similarities, parallels, with all three of those ideologies. Not the content. The content is different. But there are parallels in the ways of thinking and the kinds of arguments that people bring. Um, uh, so, so that was the that was the introduction to the rest of the the four volumes. What, so what I'm, I'm thinking of contempt is um, TV shows where um, Archie Bunker, Homer Simpson, the, where the the man is a bungling kind of bigoted idiot. Is is right. that an example that you're thinking of contempt? Yes. That would have, and we discussed those in the first one or two chapters. That's not the worst. What's the worst? The worst well, the worst is when uh, all the major male characters in a movie or TV show are are evil. Oh, they're gangster. They're like, um, what was that series that was so popular? with James Gafali, whatever his name is, about the mafia guys in New York? Oh, yes, The Sopranos. Is that an example? I mean, they're pretty evil. Yes, yes, that would be an example. Oddly enough, in that case, for some reason, I can't figure out what the reason is, but for some reason, uh, Tony Soprano was considered... An, a likable character. I don't know why. He went to a therapist. He was a father. So he, <laughs> you know, he had some warm aspects to him, although he could order people killed. Right, right. And, and Adolf Hitler loved dogs and children. <laughs> and he was a vegetarian. 
Um, anyway, so uh, so we looked at these movies and we gave extensive analyses. I mean, you don't have to even have seen the movie because we outline exactly what's going on and um, and describe the context in which it was made and received. Um, okay, so the next volume. Wait, is wait. Called, let, let let me just ask you: Have has this changed? I mean, is it the same? today or what what do you see in terms of contemporary media well and I, as i say i haven't been tracking it recently because first of all i haven't seen a movie i, I haven't because of the pandemic i haven't seen gone out to see a movie in two years um i don't get many channels on tv so i'm i'm not really tracking it but i would say um i see no reason to believe that it might be otherwise Except that now, the, the the hatred is now, once again, primarily racial rather than sexual. But it, it, it all goes together. What, what you know, about if Trump? If you're an intersectionalist uh, and, you're, uh, and you're a white man, you've already got two demerit points that are irredeemable. Wait, where does Trump fit into the hatred scene? Uh, he wielded it like anybody, like most other politicians, including Biden. Um, he certainly, my my father would have said, "This is no gentleman. He does not get to come into our into our house." And and he's not a likable person, I don't think. Um, I like some of his policies, but he he does trade in stereotypes and uh, insults and um, but not I think more than many other politicians not a, a Democrat or Republican um, I'm not impressed by what I've seen of democratic politics over the past five years um, anyway I mean Trump is a person. I don't. I'm not building a theory around him. Well, it's just that he's the the most current example of misogynist, you know, sexist, male chauvinist pig. I mean, he he really is. Now, why do you say that? Because I mean, he, he said he that jokes it, about everybody. He he said that it, his his power. His celebrity gives him the opportunity to grab women's genitalia. He's raped women, attacked women. Well, well, well whoa, just a minute. Uh, the only the story that I heard about that came out of the leak of that video was that he he was bragging about his ability to make women want to have sex with him. He no, didn't, he, he didn't talk about rape. No, he, he grabbing. He might have done that, but he didn't talk about that. Um. So it just seems like he's a foil for a, any kind of secular religion to say he's kind of the Satan that says. Oh, there's no question that that hostility to him went way, way beyond any kind of rational discussion. He wasn't some he wasn't somebody you could just dislike or disagree with. 
or both, he was, uh, he is said to be as much like a demonic figure as anybody could be. There's no rationality in this discussion. I've had many discussions, not because I'm a Trumper, but because people assume that I will be, have the same idea of Trump as they do. They assume it because I'm an articulate, reasonably intelligent, educated person, middle class. They assume that I will just, but I don't. And so when I question them on it, we always come back to the same thing. Well, I just don't like him. I can't stand his face. I don't like his origin, whatever it is. And to me, that's irrational. Oh, he, I mean, he's done so many, so many really evil things, like having unprotected sex with a porn star after his wife gave birth, or, you know, molesting women, or, you know, lying, or kicking people out of black people out of apartment buildings that they own. I mean, he, there's a list of actual negative things he's done. But it's a funny thing that, that Andrew Cuomo did a lot of those things too. And somehow or other, when he was taken down, it wasn't, it wasn't because he got patients into old age homes, COVID patients into old age homes, killing thousands. That they didn't get him for. It was that, well, he was just uh, um, an unlikable, sleazy person. No, it's because he was touching people inappropriately. Yes, that's, that's what it is. But they, but they ignored the, the stuff that was really, really uh, atrocious. Got it. Um, so, sanctifying misandry, goddess ideology, and the fall of man, is that like having feminist icons like Princess Di, is that part of the goddess ideology? Um, I think I have something in there on Princess Di, uh, although, but it might, it might also be published separately. Um, it's basically, it begins with the theory of uh, the goddess cult, which is uh, not about current icons, it's about a postulated prehistoric world in which women, well, on the one hand, women and men were equal, but on the other hand, it was under the aegis of a great goddess. So this is Rian Eisler, this is yeah. Maria Gimbutas. And, yes. and there were those cultures where they did have goddesses and they were fairly egalitarian. Archaeological remains show you know that. What? You know what? We don't know much about those our, our remote ancestors. Yes, they found, they found little pieces of carved ivory that looked like goddesses. But what if they made other images out of other materials that didn't survive? What if they used water? You know, we don't know. And we don't know how peaceful they were. They didn't have stone fortifications. They might have had wooden palisades. So I'm I'm very um, I'm not willing to just um, take as fact what is self-evidently an ideological point of view. So 
so how does that you, so you're questioning that there was that there were these egalitarian peaceful goddess worshiping cultures I'm saying I have no idea what those cultures were like and nobody else does either what do we know about the people who painted the, the cave paintings in France and Spain we know nothing those cave paintings could have had profound religious significance they could have been about hunting they could have been interior decoration I mean we just don't know so let's be a little um, uh, a little uh, cautious before wading into that. What about the fall of man part of that title? Well, because uh, the ideology, the feminist ideology that I'm talking about, has basically patterned itself, its worldview, on a reversal of the biblical pattern. Um, the biblical pattern, and I shouldn't really say biblical because it's actually post-biblical, um, but the, the idea that evil entered the world um, through um, Eve. The Bible doesn't say that, but that was what was interpreted, that's how it was interpreted by later generations. Well, doesn't it say that she was beguiled by the serpent yes, and took the bite of the apple? But Adam did the same thing. Adam was just as bad, and he was punished, just like Eve. But that she initiated it, I guess, is the point. She didn't initiate it. The serpent initiated it. But she was beguiled by the serpent. Well, he was beguiled by her. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, all I'm saying here is, never mind the chronology, though, but let's say that that was the, that was the pattern. Well, the pattern now is that evil entered the world through Adam or if not Adam as an individual, but, but men, okay? So if you apply that to the, the goddess cult theology called theology, um, you, you get the idea, okay, so everything was going perfectly, this egalitarian paradise, everybody was happy, but then suddenly, for some inexplicable reason, men rebelled, no, or the, the idea that, other, that men from other cultures invaded. Right. But it but it, it works both ways. In one way or another, men were responsible for the inauguration of evil, for for getting humans out of the Garden of Eden, out of paradise, into the world that we know in everyday life. So that's the basic paradigm. And of course, it concludes the same way too, because the biblical conclusion, not the biblical, the Judeo-Christian conclusion is that at some, at some point beyond time and space, which is to say in some other world, there we will return to paradise and everything will be fine, everything will be equal, everything will be fine. Now, I wrote my dissertation on the Wizard of Oz and the secular myth of America. And so I used three levels of interpretation. On the one hand, it was the story of Dorothy, who an individual who grows up and goes home. And it was also the story of America, which as a nation grows up and goes home. And that in turn is, comes out of the basic Judeo-Christian paradigm of the movement between paradise lost and paradise regained. So... That's a structural parallel that I drew, and I just I I explored that more fully in 
in sanctifying misandry. And then we got into other people like Mary Daly, who um, wrote the book, basically, in, in theology, um, which was my field, and so, uh, or at least part of my field. So I read, I read her books, and, um, and they're pretty hateful, and they're pretty... Well, she, uh, she feels that the XY chromosome is deficient in some ways, so that if you're lacking two X's or something inherently flawed in men. Yeah, well, you know, uh, and then there was Marilyn French, another, another one of my favorite targets, um, who wrote this book, Beyond Power, Okay, so she said that oh, men are about power over other people and women are only about... Power with. With, and uh, everything's nice and, and beautiful and caring and sharing and loving, and men are just these evil con lovers. Um, so, uh, anyway, so that Sanctifying Misandry was really a more specialized book than the others because very few people... Okural with archaeology, um, but nevertheless, um, we wrote that, and uh, then the next, the, that was the third volume. The second volume was Legalizing Misandry, and that's where we talked about um, the legal systems in both Canada and the States, and the ways in which they are not necessarily as egalitarian as you might assume. And so we went into very high-profile cases uh, and looked at the, the ideological wrangling that was going on just below the surface of the, of the legal debates in court. Um, and that was before Me Too and the vigilante movement. So um, in that sense, it's a bit, well, they're all a bit dated now because things are moving so fast. And then the next volume Wait, wait, was, so well, I, it, the main issue legally it seems to be father's rights after divorce in terms of child custody. No, no, that was one chapter. What are the other there legal other, issues? There were other chapters on sexual harassment laws. Um, there, then there was the, the military thing. And then um, there was, you know, there were a whole bunch of moral panics in the 1980s and 90s, uh, which were obsessed, people obsessed about them for years. Like teenagers well, wearing hoodies and walking around. Oh, well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the, uh, the 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 moral panic that arose out of the McMartin Day School panic. Okay, they believed some some rumor went around that. The teachers were practicing ritual cannibalism, and the kids were being forced to eat and kill each other. Anyway, so there was a whole moral panic, and there were all sorts of incidents that were brought out and interpreted as if that was the, the truth. L lawyers jumped on the bandwagon because they made money. Psychologists jumped on the bandwagon by, by, by fanning the flames. I mean, the psychologists were behind the, the idea that of uh, repressed memory syndrome, which never had any evidence. Um, so 
these were things that were going on in the 80s and 90s that we wrote about in, in Legalizing Misandry. And we the, the book is in two parts. Well, the first part is actually not about law directly, but, but indirectly, and that dealt with these high-profile um, moral panics by journals that were, you know, we looked basically at the role of journalism in promoting and propagating moral panics. Then the second part of the book was strictly legal codes. Mm -hmm. and, and then replacing Miss Andrea Revolutionary History of Men, where does that yeah. fit in? Well, that's, that's where uh, we, we retraced history, uh, a history of the male body in particular. Not, not so much biologically, but the male body as a source of identity, as a symbol. Um, and we looked at the transformations of the male body in public estimation from necessary to uh, less than necessary to demonic. So there's, a, there's an evolution there. So we looked at about 12,000 years of history. Um, and that's where um, we suggest that there is a, there's a way of getting beyond this degradation of identity for men, and that is through fatherhood. So, so that's the thesis that we end up with. But I highly recommend the chapter on the military revolution because uh, it was fun to write. Um, but also very disturbing because we looked at the ways in which masculine identity is premised on being a soldier, but being a soldier in turn relies heavily on Christian imagery. Okay, Soldiers are people who lay down their lives on an altar of the people or the country. All the imagery of sacrifice, self-sacrifice, uh, covers over the reality that the state sacrifices men. It wasn't the men, I mean, even men who agreed to go and wanted to go, that wasn't enough. It was by law, they're, they're, they had to go by law. So, and if you look at the art at uh, war memorials, the, the imagery is very heavily Christian. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and then I'm thinking about there's a whole spate of films. You're interested in media as it portrays these themes where the, the young woman is the heroine, like the Hunger Games, Divergent series, Ray in Star Wars. <clears throat> is, do you think that is in any way denigrates men or how does, how does that fit no. in? No, that in itself is not a problem. Why shouldn't women be heroes? I don't. I have no problem with that. I have a problem with with some of the male characters in those movies or productions. Darth Vader. But 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 uh, not the uh, no. The idea of a woman or a girl being a, a hero is fine with me. Okay, and then you have more books in the series that you're working on. Yes, there are two books that are in process. One of them is um, 
a history of men's movements. And the reason for that, that was an add-on. And the reason is because so far we had talked only about what women say about men, and it was about time that we heard something about what men say about themselves. The final volume, which was intended from the beginning to be the, the, the moral center of the entire project, is called Transcending Misandry. And, and the subtitle is From Feminist Ideology to Intersexual Dialogue. So, so the goal is dialogue, but you know, dialogue is a, is a very overused and misused word. I chose it because I had done uh, some work many years earlier on, uh, in Jewish Christian dialogue. And so we had, you know, nice groups who got together in church and synagogue basements and we talked nicely to each other and how much we have in common and all that. Okay, but dialogue for me is not just a nice conversation. It's not even a debate. A debate is in which one side has to win over the other. Dialogue is a form of interaction in which both groups or both individuals win. They learn something, and the, the goal is reconciliation, not, not triumph. Um, so in other words, there's a, there's a continuum of communication. At one end is, is warfare. Closer to the center is debate, which is ritualized warfare. Uh, at the other end is communion or harmony of some kind. And closer to the center is dialogue, which is ritualized communion. Um, by ritualized, I mean it, it, it takes a particular form with certain guidelines. Uh, uh, anyway. The ritual part is not important. So, so the goal is... Now, one chapter in that book is called Decalogue of Dialogue. And that means I, I just took the biblical, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, uh, as, a, as a, a symbolic gesture. It could be ten principles, it could be fifteen principles, six principles, but these are the principles, no matter how you organize them, that are necessary. They're the precondition for dialogue. So what are some of those principles? Well, the most obvious one is the, that you have to want to learn something new about the other. Not just to confirm what you think you already know, but to hear something completely different. Um, you have to, it involves, you have to make an effort. It's not something that is just a mood wouldn't it be nice to have a conversation with so-and-so? You have to prepare for it. You have to read. You have to have some knowledge to bring to the table. Uh, what are the others? Okay. I can't even remember the others because they all flow together. But that's the basic, that's the basic point. Do you have uh, any models of successful intersex dialogue that people can look to as models? Well, in the interreligious world, I can, because not all interreligious dialogue takes place at, the, at the, the personal level. Much of it takes place at an institutional level. And churches have, in fact, 
overcome centuries of, you know, hostility um, through this kind of dialogue. You know, I'm thinking about South Africa after apartheid. Mandela yeah. instituted the, uh, what was the, the, the phrase for those where we talk together? Truth and reconciliation. Um, and the yeah. Chinese, after the Chinese communists took over the late 1940s, they did speaking bitterness where peasants could, could speak in an organized group setting. Are, are those examples of, of the kind of dialogue you'd like to see? I don't know enough about the Chinese stuff. Uh, at the institutional level of, of churches, uh, it has been successful, and but the problem is, who are which are the institutions that men and women that represent men and women so that they can have a dialogue at that level? There's the National Organization of Women, but there's no equivalent for men, and and I and I, I suspect that the that now is pretty well dominated by people who are not terribly interested in dialogue. But I could be wrong about that. But there have to be parallel institutions to have the, a dialogue. The that National way. Organization of Men Against Sexism, NOMAS, always no. has a male-female task groups. No good. They are male feminists. It's not a men's movement at all. It's a women's movement. They wouldn't say that. Yeah, they would say that. They would they're say they're feminists, but they're, they're interested. They're unabashedly feminists, and they basically say, if you're not feminist, you know, we're not interested in you. Um, what, what do you see as the branches of the men's movement, and are there parallels in Canada to the U.S.? Oh, there's no border for these things at all. Um, well, well, but there's national know, groups, like, like, you know... National Congress of Men or whatever. There, so there, there, are Canadian Equality Councils. So there's there there are national organizations. Well, yes, but they but most of the membership comes from either country. It's not. Um, I mean, I used to belong to the um, what was it called now the the American oh the Academy the American Academy of Religion. Uh, but of course, you know, plenty of Canadians were members of that, and, and uh, there was no border. They had meetings up in Canada and in the States. Right. So what are the branches of the men's movement? Well, one of them that you hear about these days is the incels, involuntary celibates. Um, I don't really have a lot to say about that because it's, it's, uh, it doesn't do anything that I would want a men's group to do, it's basically feeling sorry for yourself and possibly taking revenge. So I don't give that much credit. Um, there are various, uh, there are some religious groups. Um, there was one about 20 years ago, I don't know if it's still around, but it was the group that that um, sponsored this Million Man March. Oh yeah, that was it was a black was it a African American? Largely black, yeah. yeah. And evangelical. 
anyway, um, I, I hadn't heard about that lately, but that was that was one possibility. I don't. I, I wouldn't be in favor of it either because um, it, because this notion of manhood is just um, it's a it's a historic paradigm, but they don't adjust it for current time. So if they can say that in, uh, you know a hundred years ago men were men and women were women. Oh, well, what does that say now? It doesn't do us any good. This is like promise keepers, those evangelical yeah. groups. Yeah. Then uh, there are men's groups that are focused on on custody and legal battles. Um, and they tend not to focus on anything except the immediate legal struggle. In other words, these are not men who would read a book on, you know, 12,000 years of the history of the male body. <laughs> they want practical results quickly. They don't care about anything except getting results. I'm being very, I'm being dismissive there, and there probably are many men in those movements who are not like this. But that's my general impression. It seems like the largest group now is, like, Every Man and Mankind Project that have support groups for men after initiation, warrior training, weekends. That, that seems to be the biggest. Yes. Now, now, those emerged out of what was called the mythopoetic movement. I don't know if that word is still used. Yeah. But it comes yeah. out of you know, the poetry of Robert Bly. And, and the idea is that, yes, we can learn from other cultures and incorporate these ideas um, so that men can uh, can absorb other ways of behaving or thinking about being men. And so they basically ransacked other cultures, notably tribal cultures, um, which is, uh, I mean, today people would call that cultural appropriation, but that's another matter. Um, the problem is that uh, we're not tribal. We're not a tribal culture. You can't just import ideas and rituals and myths into a, an alien culture. Mm. There has to, to me, any solution, if there is a solution, has to emerge from our own past. You know, now a future men's movement in India. Would, would look very different, perhaps, um, and rightly so. But we're not Indian, so we have to we have to deal with the resources that provide provided to us by Western civilization, and we have and it's full of resources, wonderful resources, um, not to be discarded as the woke would have. Um, then. Uh, I belong to a, uh, I support uh, a group in Canada, it's called CAFE, the Canadian Association for Equality. Oh. And it was, it originated as um, an attempt to, to do for men what similar organizations have done for women. Uh, it is 
um, very um, carefully organized to promote sexual equality. But it does focus particularly on the problems and needs of men. Which are... And nobody what, else is doing that. Like what are some well, of their issues? They have, uh, uh, in various cities, they have, uh, they have houses with, and they provide um, psychotherapeutic counseling, legal counseling. Um, they provide, they, they're building a shelter for men and children and their children, because men are victims of domestic violence. Um, and um, so they do a lot of things that I consider very valuable and worth doing. Um, are they, I guess I, are they funded, excuse me, are they funded by the government or are they a private organization or? They where? actually have some government funding, but they're mainly, because they do things, I mean, they provide services that government would otherwise have to have to fund. Um, but they get, I think they probably get most of their funding from private sources. Um, it's not quite the best fit for me because most of the people in charge are either social workers or social scientists. And my work is in the humanities. So it's not a perfect fit, but nevertheless, it's very it's a very worthwhile organization. Um, they do provide social services that men need. So, and not only social services, but also you know just even educational programs, um, and private counseling, group counseling, you name it. <laughs> They're trying to cover the territory. Do you do you think they? fill some of the gap in creating the positive male identity that you would like to see for provided young men or all men? Well, they don't do it in a systematic way. Um, I think that the men that I've met there are men that I, I they're, 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 they would be good examples for children. I mean, they're, they're devoting their time very few of them are, well, some of them are professionally trained and, and, they, and, they're, and they're paid, but others are not. Others are volunteers, but they, so they volunteer their time and their energy to mentoring boys or to doing all sorts of things that need to be done. Like a big brother kind of a program. Yeah, yeah. And then in Australia and even here now, there's something called the shed movement, men's sheds, the same kind of thing places where, where men can get together and feel comfortable about talking about their problems as men. And they, not, not easy to do. And there are those same shed groups in Canada? I think they're starting up here too, yeah. Uh, I haven't heard of them in the States, have you? No. But whatever you call them, whatever you call them, they actually are happening. Right. So when we think about young people, we think about increasing rates of anxiety and depression. And people say it's usually girls who present, especially with anxiety. What's, what's your take on mental health issues for young people? Well, in the first place, 
boys and girls exhibit anxiety or stress in different ways. So if you're looking for the signs of distress in a girl, uh, that's fine. And we have a we developed a whole vocabulary uh, to uh, articulate the kinds of thought patterns of girls. We don't have that kind of language for men, for boys. And um, as I say, they they the problems become obvious in different ways. They express it differently. A girl might join a, a gang of girl uh, uh, bullies. That happens in school. Uh, boys might join a, a, a gang that... Uh, a criminal gang. Or they might... They'll take out their... Their anxiety tends to be externalized rather than internalized. But the problem remains, and, and you can diagnose it, and you can do something about it. Uh, so boys don't go around talking about, oh, I'm so anxious, and I feel this, and I feel that. And they don't say that. That's not their way of talking. But there are other signs that indicate serious problems. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't look at the suicide stats and the dropout stats without knowing there's a problem. What, what do you see in Canada in terms of, in the U.S., men are only 40% of the college students and they're more likely to drop out? Is the same problem in Canada? Yeah, same problem. And why, why is it? Because they don't have a positive male identity? Uh, no, I wouldn't put it that way. That trivializes it. I think that... Um, not because identity is a trivial problem, but because I think there's much more going on. Um, I think that, well, you see, I don't want to explain that entirely as something psychological, that it's, because that means that the problem is just in their own heads. And I think the problem is also in the world. I think that, that the college world is extremely hostile to young men. And um, why would they feel comfortable in that kind of world? What, what, like if you take McGill, which is probably the university you know best now, what is evidence of hostility to young men? All you have to do is open up the McGill Daily every morning, and you'll find feminist rants. Um, about every what? Every old board. Pardon me? About what, what's the rant about? Oh, it could be rape culture, for example, as if boys are bringing to the university rape culture, which I, I do not believe is true. Um, then you have all, every bulletin board has notices about meetings of one group or another that are going to empower women or defeat uh, uh, misogyny or... Uh, or, or scholarships that are for women only, or, you know. So the, um, the public voice of McGill is addressed basically to women. Hmm. Uh, the assumption is that men have no problems, they're all privileged, you know, uh, and so why, why waste time? So uh, if you have... If you have university-owned property, such as the student union, uh, 
which has a women's center, but refuses to have a men's center. Um, so this kind of thing goes on all the time. And then, of course, just, just on a personal level, every day, you come out of class every day, and you've read books by feminist ideologues, or woke ideologues now, um, uh, you know, you're getting, you're getting doses of critical gender theory and critical racial theory in textbooks, although now they're even, even in elementary school in the States. I don't know about Canada, but in the States, as you know, um, there are concerted efforts to get these theories into the elementary schools. They don't all call it critical race theory, but that's what it is. But you would agree that U.S. history is racist, would you? I think it includes racism. I don't think it is racist. We're not, I'm not making some ontological statement here. Yes, there have been racism. There has been racism. Terrible. But it's not uniform. It's not continuing at all. Um... So I think that that needs to be recognized. And of course, what made all the difference in the States was Martin Luther King. Now, he would be turning over his grave to know what's going on. How so? Because everything he stood for is being demolished. His notion of that you take every individual as an individual, not as a representative of some race or class or sex or whatever. Um, now that was a, um, as prophetic as anything in, in the book of Isaiah. Um, that, is, that has been utterly demolished. So the people who are speaking now for black people, the leaders, I don't know about all black people, but the leaders whether it's Black Lives Matter or whatever, they're saying the opposite. They're saying that race is the determining feature of who you are. Doesn't matter what you think, what you feel, doesn't matter what your personal experiences have been, it doesn't matter what your attitudes are, it doesn't matter about anything, only the fact that you have a dark skin. Or, or that you happen to have an XY chromosome, a, a Y chromosome. Um, I mean, these are, uh, and you know, it's interesting, the combination of sex and race is interesting because they're both about biological determinants. You know, other forms of prejudice, I mean, in Quebec we have a, we have language conflict, but language is not genetic. So theoretically, at any rate, if you learn French, you can, you can get by. It's not always true, but theoretically it is possible. Um, and, uh, but with, with woke theory, critical race theory, critical sex theory, you're irredeemable. There is no redemption. So they are, so wokeism is a secular religion. Um, but it's, it's, it's a religion without redemption. Mm -hmm. 
and it confuses justice with revenge. Mm. These are, are, are these are turning upside down centuries of hard-won ideas. It took centuries to develop the idea that equality is a good thing. What is happening in terms of any men's studies courses at McGill, and have you thought about teaching one? Because I'm assuming there's women's studies courses. Yes, yes. They're not called. Some of them are not called women's studies anymore. They're gender because, studies. Yes, but it, it, in fact, they are women's studies. They're just called gender, because when people use the word gender, they refer only to women. Um. Well, there, I don't think there is any men's studies program in Canada. There probably are some courses within universities, I don't, but it's informal, it's not. I know there are some. There are some men's studies. You can't get a degree in men's studies in Canada. Well, there's, I don't know, maybe one college in New York where you can get a minor in men's studies or something in the U.S., so... Rare. Well, uh, at State University of New York, um, Bob not, not in Manhattan, but I think somewhere else, there's a, a program that was originated by Bob Brennan. Somebody. Bob Brennan. Robert Brennan. No, I'm thinking of um, Michael uh, Kimmel. Kimmel. Michael Kimmel. Uh. Who, who got people like Gloria Stein among his sign. Anyway, so he initiated a men's studies program, um, but it is, of course, a feminist men's studies program. So what does that mean? Well, it just means that they take everything that feminists say about men, they say it's true, and uh, let's, uh, maybe we can get beyond it by reforming in some way. But I mean, it's, it begins with the assumption that men are guilty as charged of everything, um, and that it's up to men to be more like women. Hmm. Um, there's kind of a stereotype that Canadians are nice. Do you think that's true? Are Canadians nicer? <laughs> or do you no. see any cultural differences? No. None of that. <laughs> That's a that's a fairy tale. That is not the reality at all. I think I think the Canadians are more passive than Americans, which is to say that they're they're less likely to stand up for themselves or create new institutions or they are more content to follow the leader. But niceness has nothing to do with it, let me tell you. Okay. It, it is impressive that Trudeau's cabinets for years have been really egalitarian, women, men, Sikhs, people of different ethnic backgrounds. I mean, to me, that's pretty exciting. It is, but he hasn't done a thing for the country. Really? Nothing. Why does he get reelected? Well... Uh, first of all, in Quebec, people like his name, and he has his, his father's legacy. 
he doesn't he's not up to that legacy at all. Mm. His father was a, was a real intellectual. He had ideas. This guy is a twerp. But so he has that he has that status, and there's a kind of glamour that goes around with him. Uh, he's very uh, I don't like him, but he's he has a, a kind of a stage presence. He's a glib talker. When somebody asked him why he had um, an equal number of male and female cabinet ministers, his answer was, well, because it's 2015 or whatever year it was. Now, that's a glib, that's a very glib kind. He does that all the time. Anyway, I don't, I'm, I'm not really interested in Canadian politics. I follow American politics because that's, that's the crucible of all these ideas. And do you, what are you thinking of the Biden administration so far in terms of men's issues? With a disaster, he's rolling back Betsy DeVos's um, revision of the Title IX guidelines in order to get as far away as possible from due process. That's a disaster. Um, we didn't get to something I want to find out about you is how did you decide to become a professor and study, study religious studies? What, what were the influences that led you to your career? Well, uh, I've had several careers, actually. <laughs> I, I started off in art history, and then I, I, I found that what waned was not my interest in art, but my interest in art history as a profession, because I realized after a while that it was mainly going to be managerial in the context of a museum or um, teaching it. Yeah, I wasn't really anxious to be a teacher, but um, anyway, whatever the reason, I, I abandoned that, although I certainly continue uh, my interest in reading in art, and I sometimes use my art history um, in the books that I write because I because I apply art, art historical theory to film, which is in fact part of art. Um, in fact, I think that film is probably the dominant form of modern art mm. because it is accessible to everybody. Um, you know, not everybody can go into a museum and look at uh, an installation that is, you know, and have any idea what what it's about, or even to care what it's about. But film, everybody cares. And by film, I use you know, I, you can, it applies to to TV and, and other media, but I mean, it's basically stories, narratives. And I'm interested in the kind of narratives that people have always told around campfires. I mean, these are stories about who we are, what it means to be at home, 
where we come from, where we're going, what is our purpose. This is a, a, a universal human need to talk about these things. And traditionally, they were called myths, uh, and we still have myths. And, and as far as I was concerned, over the, uh, my book, Over the Rainbow, about the Wizard of Oz, uh, I, I looked at it as a secular myth of America. What, what does the um, wizard represent? That's an interesting question. Because um, Dorothy's the, yes. the hero's quest kind of person. Yes, yes, and her three helpers, four if you include Toto. Um, well, the wizard, I think, is uh, um, a satirical figure. You know, he represents uh, the outward appearance of power or prestige, but he's actually an ordinary person. And little, yeah. Yeah. So I think even though the movie is is basically mythical, not not a parable, but there is that element. And there, there are several satirical elements. You know, among the things he says at the very end, the wizard says is, uh, you want courage? Well, everybody has courage. And they take it out of mothballs once a year and they march in their... They, they march in their their army costumes once a year. Uh, that's their courage. Um, so, so there you see the wizard comes out of the vaudeville tradition. It's basically vaudeville. Oh, and, behind the screen, the performance. Yes, and, and and even the even the dialogue, the little the comedy. And the um, and the songs—they're all straight out of the vaudeville stage. Mm. So, do you consider him a good guy or a bad guy? Well, I think he's an ordinary guy, and I think that's—I mean, because because although he's not, although there's a lot of pretension about him, but he's a good guy. He wants to help people uh, when he can, when he can figure out how to how to get things going. He tries hard. He's sympathetic to their plight. Um, he's not a bad person. He's an ordinary person. Got it. Um, so I actually there... in my in my book I compared him to Franklin Roosevelt because the movie the movie came out in 1939, just two weeks before the war or the war in Europe began, and uh, and Roosevelt had this kind of Blarney about him, you know. He could say things that people needed to hear uh, during the depression and with the war coming up. He gave people courage, um, but he didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, he was just rolling the dice. Are there other movies that have been really iconic <clears throat> for you in terms of showing our values and ethos? Well, uh, one of my favorites, now it's, it's out of fashion, but um, one of my favorites was, um, uh, what's it called now? Oh, the one with Atticus Finch and... Uh, Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, that's it. Um, yes, if I, if I could think of a, of a portrayal of a good man, it yeah. would surely be Atticus Finch. Right. 
And it's interesting that his daughter is a daughter and not a son, and she's kind of a feminist icon, you could say. You could say that, I don't know. Well, she, she stands up for justice. Yes, yes. Any other favorites? Oh, favorites. Well, I really, uh, now I, my favorites tend to be classics. Uh, the reason being that it's only with the distance and time that you can evaluate the cultural impact. Mm. So, or even the, the artistic uh, matter, for that matter. Um, so one of my favorites is um, Rebel Without a Cause. James Dean. Dean. Yeah. yeah. So there is this boy who is really confused about a lot of things, including what it means to be a man, and his father is, in his eyes, less than a man, and his mother is less than a woman, and so there's that going on. And at the end of the movie, the father takes off his coat and drapes it around his sons, and that's the classic image of some of of a boy taking on the mantle of manhood, that's his coming of age. And his coming of age wasn't just about, uh, you know, his first sexual encounter. It was about understanding responsibility. Mm. Um, I wrote a paper on that, and I compared it with The Graduate, which was made about seven or eight years later. Um, and I hated The Graduate. And I hated it because, precisely because it, it is presented as a coming-of-age story only because uh, he has Dustin his first Hoffman. sexual encounter, but he learns nothing. Doesn't, and, doesn't he ride off with the, the girlfriend at yeah, the end? Right after, right after her wedding to somebody else, he rides off, he, he abandons... Um, uh, the wedding with her, and they go off oh, yeah. uh, to some unknown future. But uh, it's about a, re it's a rejection of community. It's not about it's not about taking a, a responsible place in the community. Mm. And I think that was that was a characteristic uh, of the 1960s and everything that came afterward. It was all about to use the word, I would say it was about hedonism. It was it was a rebelling against authority, rebelling against parents, everything. And but for what, with what end in mind? No one had a clue. It was about rebellion, pure and simple. That's not that's not coming of age. That discourages coming of age. Mm. And. Any recent movies? I, I understand you. The pandemic has slowed things down, but I, I wonder if there's if you see any trends or interesting things happening more recently. Oh, I can't think of one. Okay, I'm trying to think. You know, I my, will in half an hour, but I can't now. Well, that's fine. Um, my grandson just turned 11 and he and his friends really like video games and they 
do Minecraft where they build things and blow things up. And they read Percy Jackson. It's a series about Greek gods, but they're in contemporary times. So these kids, I guess, are half deity and half not. So mm -hmm. that that's what the young boys that I know are into in terms of media. Yes, and I have no I have no problem with that. Well, but except uh, video games, if it's all shoot, shoot, bang, bang, kill, that's a problem to me. Well, but I'm not sure that they experience it that way. They're not. They don't. I think they experience uh, physical sensation of movement and and guiding their their figures or whatever. I think it's about a kind of competence. Um, that they're trying to acquire, I don't know if they pay attention really, or or take seriously killing. I I don't know that. Now you know, people have been arguing about the baneful influence of TV for as long as there's been TV, and before that it was the movies and and, and comic books. Um. As far as uh, comic books, I mean, I'm I'm just glad that there people are reading them at all, reading anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know. So I'm I'm. There might be some video games that I would find really hard to stomach. Um, but but the idea that little boys like to like to move around and 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 show their dexterity. This is not it's not a problem for me. That's the way they should be. Got it. Not sitting at little desks and, and you know, doing what they're told. Now, mind you, when I was in school, I liked sitting at my desk, you know, but I was not typical. Uh, so, last question. Are you pessimistic or optimistic when you think about the intersex dialogue, future directions towards equality? Well, I can give you two answers. On the one hand, I am very pessimistic because things get worse from one day to the next. Uh, not just about men and women, but about black and white, and all sorts of things. Conflict uh, is a fact of life, and it's just everywhere. It just contaminates everything. Cynicism is everywhere. In fact, wokeism is the is the... Uh, a, a classic venue of cynicism. It's about nothing other than cynicism. However, I can give you a second answer, and I can say that there are signs of hope. And among the signs of hope that I'll mention right now is that there are more and more women who are speaking out in favor of men. Now, some of them are women who have sons, or brothers or husbands that they love, um, uh, and we get I get letters from women who say, you know, I appreciated your book because I have a son and I'm worried sick about him. Um, but but women, but even not mothers, just women, are feeling confident enough now. How long that will last, I don't know. In this atmosphere of wokeism, but they they are saying, no, feminists are wrong about men. And I think that's a, that is a really hopeful sign. 
Have you heard of the honey badgers? This group. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. There are they. There's they started in Canada. Is that correct? Right. And what right. what's their focus? Their focus is on, I guess, on on good men, but also on they all they they. But to get to that point, they have to wade through all this feminist ideology. So they are, I think they're well-read. They have a firm, they have a, a background in reading feminist literature. Um, they, I think they claim to be egalitarian feminists. But the stuff about men is something else. They draw, that's where they draw the line, and I respect that because it always takes courage to disagree with the people that you are expected to be your supporters. Now, I'm gay, and I have um, I've opposed gay marriage. Now, that was a risky thing to do, and I and I, it had consequences. Um, uh, I'm also a Jew who criticizes Jews, or including Israel. Israelis, for one thing or another, and I get hell for it. But I think that, I, I, but to the extent that I have self-respect, and that's, for me, that's a long, problematic topic, but to the extent that I have developed self-respect, it's because I have at least the courage to be intellectually honest. Why do you oppose gay marriage? Because I think that children need both mothers and fathers. It's that simple. I mean, I had other reasons. My other reasons were simply that the arguments being presented for gay marriage, I thought were stupid arguments. Um, the only one that I could, I could really take seriously was the argument in the States, not Canada, where you didn't have universal medical coverage and so if you weren't married, you couldn't get medical coverage. Okay, that was... But you didn't have to have gay marriage to solve that problem. That would be easy to solve in other ways. Um, but my main reason was simply that I do... I'm convinced that children need, if at all possible, both at least one mother and one father. Because they're, they do entirely different things and... To have one person doing both gives a conflicting message to children. You can't tell children, I'll always love you no matter what, and I'll always re I'll respect you only if you act in a certain way. Um, now, and, I, and for the same reason, I oppose um, single parenthood. If at all possible, children should have both a mother and a father. Uh, so uh, gay people didn't, uh, didn't, um, I, I think, let me put it another way. I think that gay marriage is a symbol of the erosion of marriage itself. It didn't cause that erosion. Straight people caused that erosion many years ago. But gay people jumped on that and used that for their advantage, but uh, but it, it still does not do anything to 
encourage marriage in the way that I think it should be. Got it. Uh, anything else that we've left out that you would think we need to discuss in terms of men? <laughs> well, there, there probably are. There, there probably are. I, uh, I'm drawing a blank now. What, what book are you working on now? Well, I'm not working on a book at the moment. I, well, I do write... Uh, well, here, you ask for an example of a movie. I, I, do, I do sometimes write cultural analyses of movies. And the one I saw about five years ago happens to have been a, a Swedish-American production called, um, called Summer. And it's about um, some students who, anthropology students, who go to Sweden to visit a community that still practices pre-Christian religion. Um, and uh, the, the, this religion uh, uh, is pretty fundamentally um, a version of the goddess cult that I wrote about in Sanctifying Recentry. Um, so the male characters are all either inadequate and stupid or or worse. And the female characters are the ones who, yes, the goddess and everything is peace and happiness. I'm not giving a full account of that. I mean, I have a an intricate analysis. But since you asked, that was one movie that I wrote about. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you.